this little light of mine. Welcome to This Little Light of Mine, the podcast where we stand up for love and prioritize mental health, emotional health, and spiritual health in your life and in the lives of all people. Here's your host, James Powell. Hello and welcome to This Little Light of Mine. My name is James Powell, and I'm really glad that you're able to join me for today's interview episode. Today I'm joined with David Laskovsky, who is joining our conversation on mental health, and will be helping us delve a little deeper into the topic of suicide. David developed the HELP model that provides new tools and resources to professionals in Toronto's emergency medical services to intervene and to help those who may be suicidal. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to provide two important caveats. The first is a trigger warning. Suicide is an important and uncomfortable topic that touches many of our lives, even if we may not be aware that it does. While this conversation may be uncomfortable, I know that it's a conversation that we need to get more comfortable with. That being said, the timing of this conversation may not be right for everyone. Please proceed with caution and listen to your body on what you need to be safe in this moment. The second caveat, I want to share that David is my boyfriend. David has helped me grow in a number of ways over the past couple of years, and I wanted to invite him on to share some of his kindness, wisdom, and love so that it might help others too. With David's expertise, my hope and intention behind this episode is that we can all get a little more comfortable talking about this uncomfortable topic. With that, let's jump into my conversation with David Laskovsky. David, welcome to This Little Light of Mine. I'm glad to have you here. You hold a special place in my life and you've helped me so much on my journey over the past few years. Are you able to introduce yourself and share how you became an expert in talking about suicide? Sure. Thank you, James, for having me. My name is David Laskovsky and I born and raised in Toronto, and I worked for the Toronto Paramedic Services. I started working there in 2004 as an emergency medical dispatcher, which is a fancy title for 911 dispatcher. I deal with all types of medical emergencies, including people who are suicidal. My personal involvement when it comes to suicide was that we had a, a peer, a co-worker who, who died by suicide. He was also a friend of mine. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was it was a tough day um, because we discovered what had happened while we were working. Essentially, we received a 911 call and and went to his apartment not knowing that it was him until we got there. So it was a pretty traumatic event for all of us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and so that that sparked a lot of curiosity and a lot of emotions for me when it came to feelings of guilt and shame and not really understanding why he hadn't asked for help and how we missed it. That's how I decided to learn more and educate myself about suicide, which led me down a path of becoming a facilitator for a company that provides suicide intervention training. And through that, I've trained lots of my peers and coworkers about how to intervene when it comes to people who are suicidal. And with that knowledge that I learned, I was able to also create our own version of it to help 911 dispatchers that I work with, my peers, and adapt it to patients who are calling for help as well. Did you guys have a, a stigma attached to talking about suicide even within your environment? Absolutely. And um, I think as we talk more and more, we're going to realize and learn that it's everywhere. The stigma is, is really powerful and really strong. And no matter what type of business you're in, unless you're in a 
the business of dealing with people who are suicidal and that's your kind of your only function is still a lot of stigma around discussing suicide and mental illness, even if it is in a healthcare setting, unless you're in a mental health ward, I suppose. A lot of people are still apprehensive about discussing it. Where do you think that stigma comes from? Well, it comes from a, a lot of sources. I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions around suicide. A lot of people think, well, if I discuss it and talk about it, then maybe I'm planting the idea into the person's head and that they're going to think, oh, wow, that was a great idea. You know, maybe I should kill myself. And that's that myth has been debunked many, many times. A lot of stigma about a very taboo subject. There's feelings of, of guilt and shame, lack of information, being scared of being judged, feeling like a failure. And then, you know, along the lines of, of what your podcast is all about, there's definitely religion comes into play as well. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of religion believes that it's a sin to kill yourself. And one of the more interesting ones that I never really thought of was, if we do talk about suicide, if I am saying, hey, James, are you suicidal? And you say yes, you know, now what? <laughs> what do you, what do you do as the the person who's helping? A lot of people are are scared to ask the question because they're scared of the responsibility that might come afterwards. Yeah, I never thought of it that way because yeah, it's one thing to know what the stigma against suicide is, but it's another thing to open up. And then when that is presented, it would be quite frightening for most people, me included. On uh, okay, where do we go from here? And so I'm very happy that you're here to kind of help walk us through some of the learnings and some of the trainings that you've informed yourself about and are helping others with. There is a ton of different stigma around suicide and growing up in the church, I know that that was presented as one of the ultimate sins against God, where you're essentially throwing your life back in God's face and saying, you failed God. I don't know if the church has officially walked that back, but I do know that it is a underlying belief that I think a lot of people have never questioned. In your research, what do we now know about suicide? What are some of the facts? Well, we definitely know that the more marginalized of a group, the more likely that suicide will become prevalent to that group. Yeah. So first being, you know, LGBTQ2S community, they're almost five times more likely to attempt suicide. 40% of transgendered adults have reported making a suicidal attempt. of those people said it was an attempt done before the age of 25. So youth, you know, definitely young people. Um, We know that on average, about one person dies by suicide every 11 minutes. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, that's a lot of places in the world, more than homicide and car accidents. We know that women are more likely to attempt suicide, but men are three quarters more likely to have a successful suicide, to complete suicide. And that's generally because men choose more lethal means. Mm-hmm. Men tend to choose more passive means, like overdose, for example. And there's usually an opportunity to, once maybe they've taken the overdose, to realize, oh, crap, what did I do? And then call for help. Whereas men tend to do things like jump from a height or use a firearm, hanging, things like that, which are more more lethal and more successful. But the other more interesting fact is that most people who are suicidal don't actually want to die. They just want the pain to stop and they don't know any other way to make it stop other than suicide. One of the other things that I found really interesting was taking a look at intersectionality and taking a look at different racialized backgrounds, different marginalized backgrounds, and taking a look at that perspective. And I know the Trevor Project has done a lot of work around this to look at and to start understanding a little bit more what happens to that Indigenous youth 
that also happens to be within the LGBTQ community. And when they start to take a look at intersectionality and they take a look at race, the results were shocking, or maybe not so shocking, where they were saying 12% of white youth attempted suicide compared to 31% of Native or Indigenous youth, 21% of Black youth, and 21% of multiracial youth. And it, it's something that as a, a white man, I never really thought of all of those different aspects. I think it's easy for, or I don't want to call it easier, but it's more relatable for me to look at specifically the LGBTQ community and talk about the increase there. But I think it is really important that we pull up and identify intersectionality and how that impacts this topic as well. Absolutely. And I mean, the reason why you are identifying as, you know, a white person who's in the LGBTQ2S community is because those are the shoes you walk in, right? So those other marginalized groups have the same stigmas attached to people in the LGBTQ2 plus community, but they also have the other social stigmas, the economic stigmas and hardships that follow. All those things just get thrown in the same bucket. So they're just dealing with so many more issues and problems that it just makes everything more complicated and more difficult. So the increase in suicide and thoughts of suicide goes up along with it. And you could add to that group as well, you know, people who have PTSD and other mental health issues that have nothing to do with their ethnicity. So all those things get added into everyone's personal bucket. And it's hard when you don't identify with any one of those particular groups. And it's easy for say to say, well, why don't you just get help and, and talk about it? And when you're not living that life, it's 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 hard to to look through that those lenses. And what do we know now about phrases in the past have come up around what a selfish choice? Mm-hmm. I wish they didn't do that to themselves. Mm-hmm. Versus suicide being a ramification of mental illness. What do we know, and how do we kind of how does the medical community look at suicide now? Well, the, the the great thing is that people are talking a lot more about suicide than they ever have before and mental health and getting support for your mental health. So that's really positive and reassuring. I can definitely say like in my line of work, when I first started, there was very much a suck it up mentality, you know, be tough. And if you can't handle it, then, you know, get a new job. And that's definitely changing now. We have a lot more education within the department and within the emergency services, a lot more education on signs and symptoms of mental health, the importance of it, and how to reach out for help. So times are changing, which is really good. Even things like the vocabulary is changing. You know, we don't say uh, commit or committed suicide because commit or committed makes it sound like it's a crime. And uh, suicide was decriminalized quite a few decades ago. So even just changing the way you speak is making an impact. So you'll say things like died by suicide or completed suicide. Wow. And that's, I think, an important part to bring out. I didn't even, I don't know if I fully knew or even remembered that suicide was at one point a crime. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's easy to pin so much of this on religion as kind of creating that negative stigma. But we also see that ramification in society. If it was a crime before, no wonder so many people have that stigma attached to it still. Absolutely. And and touching on religion and what you were just asking me about how things are changing. Sure, a lot of religions say that it's a sin or that it's wrong and that you'll go to hell and all those different things. But they also want you to not do that. So don't do it. You know, we don't want you to do it. Come talk to us. Well, James, if, if I'm going to your church and you're preaching about how it's a sin and you're going to go to hell... And I'm suffering and I'm feeling 
like suicide as an option. Am I going to go to you for help when <laughs> you've just judged me and condemned me and told me what a bad person I am? No. You know, so it's really important that when we are talking about suicide, that you, you be as much as Switzerland as you can be as neutral as you can, you know, don't say things like suicide is wrong. Suicide is selfish because someone could be listening. People are listening and they could be struggling and you've already shown them that you're not a safe person to come talk to. So a better thing would be to say suicide is an issue and it affects all of us. We want everyone to be happy and to live. And if you're struggling with suicide, come and talk to me. I'm okay talking about it. That's, that's a better way of approaching it as opposed to already judging the person because they're not going to come forward and speak to you. Right. Now, in preparing for this conversation, you sent me over a video, a really impactful video about someone jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. I'm going to add that into this episode. Are you able to introduce that video to everyone? Sure. So it's um, a young man named Kevin Hines, and he was one of the thousands of people who have jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And part of uh, less than 1% of those who have survived that jump. In this video, he basically retells the story of how he was suffering and how he felt like he had no other option and, um, and jumped off the bridge, but actually did survive the fall and now dedicates his life to talking about suicide and, and mental health, trying to reach people let them know that there is help out there. Since 1937, over 2,000 people have died at the Golden Gate Bridge. I feel lucky to be alive every single day. Of the thousands that have died off the Golden Gate Bridge, I am of the 1% who have survived. So I was born on drugs and premature, and then I bounced around from home to home. Nobody wanted to keep me because I was sick, and I got lucky. I landed in the home of Patrick and Deborah Hines. I had a great childhood. I thought growing up that everything's going to be great. And then at 17, it, it all came crashing down. If you can imagine feeling that everyone around you is out to get you, trying to hurt you, and trying to kill you. And you believe that to be the truth. From the extreme paranoia, I exhibited symptoms of mania. From the mania came the hallucinations, both auditory and visual. And so with that and the bipolar disorder, I just was spiraling out of control. I vividly remember writing my suicide note. People don't get it. Like, I, I thought I was a burden to everyone who loved me because that's what my brain told me because that's how powerful your brain is. I got off the bus. I walked slowly down the walkway of the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, people rode by me drove by me, walked by me, and a woman approached me. And she said, will you take my picture? She said, thanks, and she walked away. It was that moment I just said, nobody cares. The reality was that everybody cared. I just couldn't see it. I ran forward, and using my two hands, I catapulted myself into free fall. What I'm about to say is the exact same thing that 19 Golden Gate Bridge jump survivors have also said, the millisecond my hands left the rail, it was an instant regret. And I remember thinking, no one's going to know that I didn't want to die. In four seconds, I fell 75 miles an hour, 25 stories, and I hit the water. 
Uh, I was in the most physical pain I had ever experienced. I have ever experienced. The Coast Guard was amazing. Uh, he was just so freaked out that I was alive that he just dove in and brought me on board. The guy said, do you know how many people we pull out of this water that are already dead? And I said, no, and I don't want to know. The guy put his hand on my forehead and said, kid, you're a miracle. My father took one step into the hospital room and I looked up at him and I said, Dad, I'm sorry. And he said, no, Kevin, I'm sorry. And if you think about it, both of our immediate reactions were guilt. Guilt that didn't belong to either of us. And even though I didn't die, I caused people a great deal of grief and pain. Just the day of my attempt still sits within them today. I asked my father if he still feared my death by suicide. He said, every time the phone goes off, his first inclination is Kevin alive. I had that impact on my dad. So after the jump, uh, the road to recovery was pretty long. I had seven psych ward stays in the next 11 years. I, I still have all the symptoms I ever had. Mania, depression, psychosis, hallucinations, all that's still there. I just know how to cope with it and I know how to beat it. I built a support network over these years of treatment so that I wouldn't be fighting this alone. So like, it's okay not to be okay. It's not okay not to ask for someone to back you up. To the families who, who live with the loss or losses of loved ones, they didn't do that to hurt you or destroy your life. They, they took their lives because they were struggling and in a great deal of emotional and mental pain. Suicide, mental illness, and addiction are the only diseases that we blame the person for perpetually. But people die from suicide just like they die from any other organ diseased. Today, no matter the pain I'm in, no matter the struggles I experience, I do believe that life is the greatest gift we've ever been given. And if you're suffering mentally, don't wait like I did sitting in denial for so long. Because recovery happens, I'm living proof. Wow, so that's one of the most impactful videos I've ever seen on a perspective that we very rarely get to see on somebody that made a decision to go through with suicide and was there to have that conversation with us after. Yeah. And, you know, I've watched that video many, many, many times because I include it in my, my workshop at work. And it, it really does hit me really hard each and every time I, I get a little choked up. And, you know, he says a few things that, that really stand out to me, which is that the moment his hands left the railing, that he regretted his decision to jump. And he says, I think he said nine out of 10 survivors, or was it even all the survivors, regret attempting the suicide, um, which, which to me says that people don't want to die. They just really don't know what else to do. That's a, a huge message that he sends. Right. And so we talked a little bit about stigma. Why else do you think so many people suffer and don't reach out for help? Well, I think part of the problem, as I've already touched on, is that people are already sharing their beliefs and their attitudes and their opinions about suicide, and people are not comfortable. They're uneasy. You know, there's all this taboo around it that it's really touchy and sensitive. So there's a fear. There's a fear there. That fear is very, very strong. You know, think back to when you were itty bitty Jimmy Powell and you were a kid and you were gay. You know, you've talked about on your podcast, you know, who could you turn to for help? Nobody. Everywhere you looked, no one was like you. No one discussed it. And if they did, it was in a negative way. So many people just want to talk to someone about suicide or, or about their suicidal thoughts, but they feel like they've, they'll be judged and not helped or made fun of, not taken seriously. 
Maybe they'll have their kids taken away from them. They'll be fired from their jobs, thrown into a mental institution, put in jail, medicated. They feel totally alone and they feel like no one will understand them and that, they, that they're a burden on, on everyone else. And those are really hard, strong, heavy things to, to get past, to actually ask for help. Uh, it takes a really strong person to, to get through all of those feelings and actually ask for help. You know, they're in this place of, complete darkness you know it's so dark that they can't even see their own hand in front of their face how can they possibly see that they can reach out for help uh, it just it's impossible when they're in that crisis there's a, a lot of a lot of things holding people back from from getting help um, you know we've discussed together and you've discussed on your podcast about how there's so much shame about trying to better yourself and address mental health issues that it's almost easier to to, to fake it and pretend you broke your leg than you need to talk to someone about what's going on in your head. Absolutely. And I know that I've definitely had those thoughts at various times in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the sad parts is when you teach somebody that they are unworthy or that they're sinners or that there's something wrong about who they are as a person, this is what happens. And those people aren't going to reach back out or it's so much harder for those people to reach out and ask for help. And I think as a society, and I even look at my life individually, it's so hard for me to ask for help on even small things. Hey, will you help me come over? Uh, I need to pick up groceries or I need to paint a wall or even those things I've been trained to like, just figure it out yourself. And those are such minuscule things when you compare to the overwhelm of somebody contemplating suicide yeah i mean why well, you need help with your groceries you're, you're incapable of doing it yourself are you weak are you not a man come on man up what's the big deal um that's that's what's happening and that when when, when something is affecting you especially when you're a, a kid and you're young you learn very quickly that i can't be this way because it means that i'm weaker that i'm not enough or that i'm not loved and you, you quickly have to you do without even realizing you, you create this alter ego of yourself um, just to survive. And as you get older, it takes a toll and you are more likely to, to spiral and end up with, you know, depression or substance abuse issues or both. It gets more and more challenging to, to get out of that hole. And I think one of the other lies that we've believed in for so long is that we're separate from one another, that we are so mm different and not the same that no one else is having these thoughts that no one else cares but the reality is there is no separation between us i know when i've been having suicidal thoughts and even going into ideation at different points in my life it was because i believed i was all alone that there was mm -hmm. no one else out there that i was having a unique experience that was only happening to me it's funny because so much of it happens with issues that are so taboo um, like suicide, obviously, but you know, um, miscarriages, for example. Mm. I'm I'm pretty sure every woman who's gotten pregnant has had a miscarriage at some point, and and no one talks about it. <laughs> and then it happens to someone, and they they feel they feel like their body is gross, that that they are failing as a mother, that they're incapable of creating a life, that they're all these horrible things. Meanwhile, pretty much every woman has probably had one and doesn't talk about it until maybe it happens and they mention it to their mom. Like, oh, yeah, I had five, you know, oh, you know, I'm exaggerating, but um, it's it's so common. You know, everybody poops, you know, we all and you know, nobody talks about it kind of thing. So it's it's so interesting because the 
the detriment is just so profound. It really affects people. Meanwhile, if we were just more open about these things, it wouldn't be so weird to talk about it. And more people would be willing and feel more comfortable asking and getting help. Right. And so speaking of asking for and getting help, you developed a framework that helps individuals intervene and help someone who may be suicidal. Are you able to walk us through that help framework? Yeah, absolutely. So people in my business love acronyms. So HELP is an acronym, um, H-E-L-P. The H stands for hints. The E is for engage. L is for listen. And P is for protect. So we think back to our earlier conversation about you know avoidance and stigma. You know, people who are at risk of suicide really want to talk about it. There's, there's an, a want and a need to talk about it, and they're just too scared to. Instead, what they do is they drop these little hints. They're, they're testing us. They're testing people around them, hoping that they will pick up on these hints and ask them, hey, are you, are you suicidal? Um, and these hints come in different forms. So they, they're things that they say. They're things that we can see. They're things that we already know. And sometimes it's just a little gut feeling that we have. You know, things that you hear are things like, they can be very direct. You know, I wish I was dead. Things would be better off when I'm gone. I just want the pain to end. I don't want to live anymore. It can be a little bit more subtle. Nothing really matters. Oh, you know, one day this will all go away. Those are more subtle ones. You know, we'll see things like perhaps a change in their mood, in their appearance. Maybe we notice some scars on their arms, their bodies, a deterioration in their physical health. Are they becoming more isolated? Is there a substance abuse issue? Um, are they more withdrawn, more angry, mood changes? There's also things that we know. Maybe there's, we know about um, a history of abuse, trauma, of loss, history of mental illness. And then there's that gut feeling that I like to call the spidey sense. People who are dropping these hints, you know, we've got a baseline with that person. We know what they're normally like. So if they seem a little off, maybe it's that they're struggling. And, you know, it could just be a struggle, but it could also be a struggle with suicide. So it might be a big leap to say, Oh, they, they're off. Maybe they're suicidal. You know, that's, that's a big jump, but it's definitely worth investigating, right? So if you're picking up on those hints, that's when it's time to E, engage them, the E in the help model. Um, you know, the elephant is in that room. You're, you're ready to ask them if they're suicidal. What's the best way to do it? You know, so, so James, go ahead. Like, how would you, how would you ask me if you think I'm suicidal? Yeah. And, and I cringe, but before we get into that, can I go back to the hints for a second? Yeah, go for it. I think part of the danger and part of the hard thing in picking up the hints is that some of the hints that people are struggling are just culturally accepted as being normal. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we talked about in our last episode is we normalize that work hard, play hard. We normalize a lot of that aggression and anger. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking back at like, is this different from someone's baseline? Mm -hmm. It may not be. And so that's where I think it might be challenging sometimes to really use those hints. And that's where I think it's important as we move into engage and it is having Mm -hmm. that connection. It is asking those questions. It is creating a space of vulnerability where one people feel open or safe enough to even be in the same space to be asked these questions. And as I look back at my life and for a large majority of it, I would never even allow myself to be in those spaces to be even asked that. I would actively avoid that kind of 
connection or vulnerability. Yeah, well, and avoidance is is a sign. <laughs> uh, it's definitely a sign to, to look for. It's one of the hints, you know, avoidance for sure. And it is so tricky and and it is very, it can be very subtle. Work for, for, for some reason, work is one of the last things that we hold on to when we're suffering, when we're having mental health issues. Close relationships, um, socializing, exercise, self-care, all those things are first to go. Your sleep, all that stuff goes first. And the last thing people generally cling to is work. So yes, people can be workaholics and not suicidal, of course. But when you, again, you have that baseline. So if this person used to be more social and now they're not, if they used to um, care about how they looked and now they're not, and if they used to go to the gym all the time and they're not now, and, and they're just working, 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 that's when you need to start asking yourself, hmm, I've noticed some big differences here. And I think I need to ask the the big tough question next. Yeah. And I would totally put myself in that category because work was that last pillar for me that if you remove that, I had nothing. And so many of the other parts of my life had fallen away, but because I still had this image of myself and who I was at work, that in a way kept me safe. And even as I say, kept me safe, I can now look back at it and say, it also kept me trapped because it allowed me to avoid so much of what was actually going on in my life. It's a security blanket. You know, it's, it's, it's work. Uh, you feel useful. You're feeling productive. And every other part of you outside of work is feeling the opposite. So it's, it's generally the last thing that you cling on to, and it makes sense. So I'm going to spin things back around and not answer your question because I don't know how to answer your question. How do you engage someone properly and ask directly? Well, the most important thing is that you ask them, is that you flat out ask them and that you ask them directly and that you use the word suicide. James, are you thinking of suicide? Are you suicidal? Are you thinking of killing yourself? Um, it's so important. It's essential and crucial that you ask directly and use the word suicide, not to dance around it, not to say things like, are you thinking of hurting yourself? That's wrong. You're not thinking of hurting yourself, are you? That's even more wrong because I'm judging you now based off how you're going to answer. Mm. Um, if you dance, dance around asking directly, it, you're you're telling them that you are uncomfortable with this topic, and it really diminishes the significance of of what they're going through and what's happening. This is how I like to frame it: is by saying, "Hey, uh, mom, I've noticed the house used to be really clean all the time, and now it's not so clean. I've noticed you're not." doing your Euchre nights anymore. And, and I noticed, um, I know you've been really sad since dad died. Sometimes some people, when all those things are going on, they're thinking of suicide. Are you, are you thinking of suicide? And that's a really gentle way to ask a really tough question because you're not accusing them. You're making them realize that they're not alone, that there are other people going through and experiencing what they're going through. And it still asks the question. They can say no, and you can believe them, which is great. And then you can say, well, I'm, I'm glad you're not, but please know if you ever are thinking of suicide, you can come to me and we can talk about this. I'm, I'm okay talking about it. But if they are thinking of suicide, you've now made a really important connection. And it's probably the first time they've ever had a chance to discuss it with anyone. Right. And asking them directly tells them that you're comfortable talking about suicide. And it 100% eliminates the feelings of stigma surrounding it because you've made them know that this is a safe place and I'm here to help you. So asking directly, you know, sometimes some people going through 
X, Y, and Z are thinking of suicide. Are you thinking of suicide? That's a nice sort of gentle way to ask it. And it's funny because, you know, as someone who teaches this stuff, it's really simple uh, to, to say it in a class. As someone who asks 911 callers constantly, you know, if they're having a mental health issue, are you suicidal? Very easy to do. But when it's someone you care about, someone you know really well, someone you love, asking them is, is really hard. And I've had to do that in, with friends and they've all said no, which I'm thankful for. But even I feel how hard it is to do because it's you're so worried about how they're going to perceive it. You're so worried about, like we said earlier, you know, what if they say yes, then what? And for some reason, that stigma is so powerful and it's, it's, a, it's a really hard question to ask, but the importance of it is, is paramount. It's really, really, really important that you do it directly. It's interesting because as a 911 dispatcher, I kind of in my mind say, well, yeah, you have permission to do that because it's your job, but I can see mm-hmm. so much harder when it's not, I, I don't know, I guess I, I, in my mind, kind of do have that stigma attached where we say, well, it's not my job, so I'm not going to do it. And when I take a human perspective, it, of course, it's our job. It's our job to care for people. It's our job to be there with people. But yeah, that's a it's a challenging topic to talk about. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the word permission because it does feel like permission. Like you need permission to ask them the question. But we have to remember that people who are suffering and thinking of suicide really want to talk about it. But that that stigma is so strong. Mm. So when they're dropping these hints and these clues, they they are giving us permission when they're doing that. They're just really hoping and wishing that you'd pick up on it. And it's like an indirect permission. And that's something that we need to try to remember is that we're never going to get, you know, a greeting card in the mail saying you have permission to ask me some suicidal. It's never going to be like that. But all these hints, we need to be engaged and in touch with people and and have these hard conversations because they do want to talk about it. They're just far too scared. They They need to and they want to, but they can't bring themselves to do it. And that's where we need to step in as helpers and as our as friends and loved ones and ask the tough question. And again, if we if we word it in a way that sounds more gentle, like sometimes some people going through these things and displaying these characteristics and emotions are thinking of suicide. Are you one of those people? Are you thinking of suicide? It's it's a much gentler way. And if they say no, they're not going to be offended or upset. And if they say yes, they're going to be really relieved. So it's a win-win. Once you do ask them, what's next? Well, you've engaged them now, so you can move on to the L, the the listening part. And this part's also really difficult. You know, you're going to say, wow, I'm really sorry you're hurting so much and that you're you're thinking of suicide, but I'm also really glad that you told me. Tell me, what's, what's going on? Why are you thinking of suicide? And the hard part is going to be that you're sitting there with them and listening to their story of suicide. And... It's going to be a story that is full of pain and sadness and suffering and loss. And you're there, right there with them, feeling it with them. And your job is to be present and engaged and listen while they tell their story. And that's not easy to do, especially when it's someone that you love and care for, hearing that they're in so much pain and that you didn't know they were in that pain is, is really difficult. Often their story won't make a lot of sense. It'll it'll bounce around. It won't be cohesive. It'll be a little unclear. And that's that's normal. Sometimes your situation might sound even kind of trivial or silly. That's also normal. And the reason for that is that they're in that darkness I mentioned before and the darkness where they can't see 
anything. And so things that seem obvious to you aren't to them. Solutions to their problems appear really simple and easy to you, but it won't to them because they're in that crisis, they're in that darkness. So again, your job is to, to be engaged with them and to listen. I like to describe it as you are going to be their night vision goggles in their darkness. And you're searching for something and you're listening. You're searching and listening for a little beacon of hope in that darkness that only you can see because you've got your goggles on. And you find that beacon of hope by listening. And what you're listening for are for life connections. And as they talk about their situation and their life connections, they more often than not will quote unquote slip up for lack of better words, and an opportunity is going to reveal itself. So as they talk about their story of suicide, more often they'll say something like, if only there was another way, um, I don't see any other choice. Right now, all I want to do is die. I wish there was someone who could help me. I don't know what else to do. And those are the phrases. Those are the beacons that we're looking for. We're not looking for things like, think of your family, think of your kids, everyone loves you. They can't see that. That's not making sense to them. But those phrases that I mentioned are, are phrases of doubt and uncertainty, hmm. but also phrases that describe hope. And you can use those phrases to go to the next letter in the acronym, which is PROTECT. Okay. It's a lot. Are you with me? <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I, I think interesting because I this makes sense when I'm thinking of myself mm. in a coaching, counseling, therapeutic action-oriented session or conversation mm. where I could see myself getting way off base is when you're having these conversations with friends or loved ones because I would go into the model when it's in that kind of environment towards instead of listening how do you solve mm -hmm. how do you keep these people safe how do you become a cheerleader how do you become and it, it takes it down a completely different path and it's overwhelming to think that it's your job to solve for someone well you've asked the question and your greatest fear was what if they say yes and now they've said yes and now you feel responsible right and that's huge and that's a big burden and now you're terrified that if you say the wrong thing, they're going to kill themselves. And that if you give the wrong advice, they're going to kill themselves. So the pressure is on now. You're in the hot seat. And that's why this isn't easy. And that's why everyone avoids it. Because it is not easy work. It is hard and difficult and stressful. And the potential outcome can be final and irreversible. So it's, it's really easy to want to just fix their problems. But that's not how they're going to get through this. It's not the easiest way, that's for sure. There is a, a much easier way out of it, which is listening to those or trying to find those little beacons of hope, those little phrases of doubt and uncertainty. And as we enter the, the protect stage, the P, it's all about taking that little opportunity, that little liver of doubt and uncertainty and hope and turning it into a commitment that they'll put suicide on hold and agree to getting help. When people are suicidal, they often think, and as helpers, we often think there's only two ways out of this. Option one, they choose to live. And option two is they choose to die. Mm -hmm. And that's really a hard decision for them to make in crisis. And this third option is just putting it on hold for now. It's, it's all about being safe, like just for a bit, safety for now. That's the lifesaver. It takes away the stress of having to decide between life or death. And you're using their own words. I don't want to say against them, but you're using their own words sort of 
for them. Yeah, exactly. And it gets them to make a commitment to safety. It, it's hard too. It takes a lot of practice. But here's an example of what it might sound like. Uh, hey, I, I know you're going through a lot right now and it feels like there's only darkness. But you also just told me that you wish there was a way out of it. And that tells me that at least a part of you still wants to live. So if that's the case, can, can you just agree to stay safe for now and you and I can go get you some help together? And I'm not sure if you can feel the difference, but mm-hmm. it's this, you're taking the pressure off. And when you say to them, wait a minute, you, you just said you wish there was a way out of this. That tells me you're not 100% on board with killing yourself. You're not 100% on board with life either. I get that. But if you're not fully invested on suicide, then let's just put it on hold for now and we'll get you some help together. And that's a much smaller pill to swallow than, than picking option A or option B. part that really stuck out for me was let's move forward together. Mm-hmm. And it's not just simply leaving someone and say, so call 911. It's let's look into this and let's be together through this. Yeah. And 911 is always an option if this person refuses to be on board with you. And if they're in an altered state because of drugs or alcohol, if, if, if another person's life, like a child's life is at risk, or there's a firearm or a weapon, you know, 911 is there for a reason. And, and I don't want to discourage anyone from calling 911. But if someone's agreed to work with you to staying safe, at least for now, there's, there's lots of things you can do, you know, we all have a fire plan. There's a fire in the house. What do we do? Um, you know, you can create your own little protection plan. So you want to say, okay, thanks. I'm glad you're on board with, with not killing yourself for now. I'm, I'm happy to help you. What were you planning? Were you, did you have a plan on how you were going to kill yourself? Uh, you know, if they did have a plan, make sure you dismantle that plan. You know, take away the pills, take away the knife or the gun. Drugs and alcohol shouldn't be around. You know, you want to find out if there is a history of past suicide attempts. Is there a support system for them at home, a safe place to go? Their family doctor could get involved. You could reach out on their behalf. Uh, There's also suicide hotlines, emergency departments. So there's lots of things that will be there for you when you develop your protection plan once someone agrees to staying safe for now. What I really liked about that, I wasn't discouraging calling 911 but what i really resonated with was let's call 911 together let's call mm-hmm. your family doctor together let's go to the emergency room together mm-hmm. because we can be there with other people absolutely and if you can't maybe you're having a zoom call with someone and they're on the other side of the country you know uh, you can't physically be there with them so there are going to be limitations to what you can and can't do but as long as they know that you're going to be with them as much as you can as much as you can withstand, because you, of course, want to keep yourself safe and protect yourself, then yeah, they know that they're not alone and that you're going to be with them as much as you're able to. That's that's big because, again, they feel very alone and you've made this incredible connection with them. And, you know, this conversation will likely be hours and hours long, not, not 20 minutes long. And you're going to want to help them see it through. Right. And so what if we flip this around and what if it's you that are experiencing suicidal thoughts? How do you reach out and ask for help? Because I think that can be scary on that side of things too. Yeah. The great thing today is that, like I said, suicide is being talked about a lot more and more. So hopefully people are seeing that and hearing that in the media, social media, in the classrooms, in the workplace. 
but I mean, a quick Google search will get you a suicide hotline number to call 1-833-456-4566 in Canada. And you can also text that number as well. In Toronto, there's a center called the Gerstein Crisis Center, which is 24-7, and they are run by mental health professionals. And they have a mobile crisis unit that will come and help you. They even have apartments available. If your residence is an unsafe place, if there's room, then they will take you in. And I'm not sure if that's still the case with, with COVID. I think it is. So there are, there are several resources available. Um, there's also counseling, like online counseling now. Um, they can do from your phone. You can text counselors on different apps as well. Don't forget your, your employer probably has some type of peer support team or perhaps they have a what do you call it um employee assistance thank you yes eap employee assistance program uh things like that check to see if you have you know if your benefits cover talking to a counselor or a mental health professional there are a lot of resources out there that a a quick search online will come up with, with with a ton which is which is reassuring and nice to know and everyone's got their phone on them so it's really easy to do right from the palm of your hand Well, one of the positive things I've read in the news in both the U.S. and Canada is that conversations are underway to create a national three-digit suicide prevention hotline. So I know those things are in the works both in Canada and the U.S., and I can only imagine that that will be easier for people to access and to remember in times of need as well. Definitely. And, you know, um, I know you and I have had this conversation before about, you know, millennials and how they're coming in with this attitude that is very different from our attitudes of just work harder and, you know, tough, be tougher. They're coming in with the attitudes of, I need to look after myself and the employer needs to make sure that we're looked after. And they are a lot more fearless than we are um, when it comes to seeking help and getting help and making sure help is readily available. And that's really reassuring. I'm feeling really confident and excited about seeing some big changes happening in the future when it comes to suicide and mental health. Well, and it's really interesting to hear you label that as being fearless, because I think a lot of people look Mm -hmm. at younger people and say, they're so full of fear. They're so concerned about these things, but you're right. It's fearlessness. And I think it's growing in a way, self-esteem to say, I'm worth more than this. And I'm going to demand this level of care. Definitely. And I mean, What's different? Uh, I guess it's just a generational thing, right? There's just different values on different things with the generations, and they are putting more value in things that we put less in. And I think that's awesome. I really kind of I'm excited for that. It makes me really happy. And the old way wasn't working, and just because that one person who maybe the boss went through life with ever having to deal with this doesn't mean that everyone else has and doesn't mean that they're right. So it's exciting to see that um, this fearlessness is taking hold and that they're really emphasizing the importance of of getting help when you need it mentally. Right. And, and speaking of getting help, how do you take care of yourself when you're helping others? That's a really good question. It's so easy to slip into um, a dark place yourself when you're surrounded by people who are constantly needing help and you're always in a, a caregiver role. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the most important thing to do is to set boundaries and to make them very clear with the person that you're helping to know what type of boundaries they are and to stick to your boundaries as well. Um, so you can call me anytime, 
but for between this hour and this hour, I'm, you know, daycare or I'm working or I'm asleep or whatever it is. So here's what you'll do during these hours instead of calling me because I can't always be there for you and making sure that they know what those boundaries are. It's really important that you continue doing things that you love to do, that you spend time with supportive people, that you are physically active and that you ask for help when you need it. You know, talk to someone yourself. Right. Um, that's something that I re- struggled with for many years on the job. I felt like, you know, I signed up for this job. It's my burden. So when my mom or my sister asks me, how was, how was your day at work today? you have any tough calls? Yeah, I had, I had a lot of tough calls today, uh, but I didn't ever want to burden them with my burden because, you know, she's a teacher, she's retired, she's a this. They didn't sign up to listen to all the, the violent, horrific things that I hear every day. Why would I want to share that with them? I, I don't. So I saw that as me protecting them. And that took a toll on me, that's for sure. And I had to get help as well. Finding someone that you can talk to is really, really, really important. And uh, whether that be someone you trust, um, whether that be a psychologist, psychiatrist, family doctor, um, as long as you're able to talk about it, then you'll find that really, really helps. And if, as we close out, if you can leave listeners with one piece of advice on this topic, what would that be? One, uh, maybe one and a half. Um, <laughs> I'd say don't be scared to, to connect with people. We, we need to have real connections with people, to talk to people when we are concerned for them, to really engage them, to listen. And the most important thing is to ask the person directly if they're thinking of suicide. Because like I said earlier, it's probably the first time that anyone has ever asked them that and it'll probably the first time that person has ever really said yes and been able to talk about it. And just the ability to talk about it and save lives. Right. Yeah. And and I think this conversation will too. And so I'm so thankful that you're able to join us today. And this is an uncomfortable conversation. It is an uncomfortable topic. I could feel it in inside of me as we're going through this. And even my thinking of like, oh, I don't want to screw this up. I don't want to say anything wrong. But I think it is these types of conversations that help normalize that and go a long way to making an uncomfortable conversation a little bit more comfortable. I hope so, too. I really hope so, too. And, um, you know, suicide is is a difficult topic. Based off statistics, it is likely to come into your life at some point in your lifetime, um, directly or indirectly with someone you know. It is this darkness that is always possibly out there. So why not be more equipped for it and ready for it should it ever happen to you? It's a tough, tough subject, but it's definitely one worth having. And, and the more we discuss it, the more easy it will be for us to, to help someone when they need it. Well, thank you for helping us have that conversation today. My pleasure. So how are you after that conversation? What feelings, emotions, insights, and questions came up for you? Did you learn anything new that might help you open up and get a little more comfortable with this uncomfortable topic? As David shared, the topic of suicide is shrouded with stigma. This stigma continues to grow, evolve, and strengthen when we allow our own uncomfortable feelings to go unchallenged and unchecked. We break this stigma 
when we start to break our silence on this topic. One of the biggest insights I learned from David is that people who are considering suicide want to talk about it. They are desperately hinting and looking for an opening and a permission to connect deeply, vulnerably, and authentically. The other thing that really helped me as David walked through the help model was that helping someone that may be experiencing suicidal thoughts does not mean that I have to solve their problems. My role is to be there to listen and to help protect them from immediate harm. David has also shared some further resources around what you can safely say, what to avoid saying, and what to listen for. And I've posted those on thislittelightofmine.ca in the notes section for today's episode. I want to thank David for taking us through the help model today and for helping us get a little more comfortable with this uncomfortable topic. I love you, David. As a reminder, if you or someone you love are experiencing a mental health crisis and are considering suicide, there are people who want to connect with you right now. The 24-7, 365 National Suicide Prevention Line in Canada is available at 1-833-456-4566. And the number in the U.S. is 1-800-273-8255. The Trevor Project in the U.S. estimates that at least one LGBTQ plus youth between the ages of 13 to 24 attempts suicide every 45 seconds. Transgender and non-binary youth report more than four times greater rates of suicide attempts compared with their cisgender peers, including those who are LGBTQ. This same 2021 study also reports that transgender and non-binary youths who reported gender identity acceptance from at least one adult had 33% lower odds of reporting a past year suicide attempt. Acceptance from one single adult resulted in 33% lower odds of reporting a suicide attempt. This is where we all need and can take immediate action. It costs us nothing to accept someone and to see all of God's creation as worthy and fully loved beings. You are accepted. You are loved unconditionally by God who made you exactly as you are. You, your heart, your mind, your body, your spirit, your gender expression, your sexuality, and the way you love are created perfectly in God's image. You were created on purpose, and your purpose is to fully love yourself, connect deeply with others, and share your love with the rest of our world. Thanks for listening to This Little Light of Mine. To learn more about our guests today and for links from our show, visit www.thislittlelightofmine.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, or feel that it could bring love and acceptance into someone else's life, please like, rate, review, and share so that we can build our community and bring more love into the world for all people. Now go and let your light shine bright because you are loved.